Would you bow your hearts in prayer with me? Father, we, we come to you this morning and um, just in need. And acknowledging that the cry of Hosanna is a cry of need. That we need a, we need a Savior, we need a Rescuer, that we um, are too small for the task at hand. We are unable to get ourselves out of the mess that we are in, and we need someone just infinitely greater than us. I know I, know I feel the weight of that need today. I, I don't think I'm alone, Lord, so we pray that your Holy Spirit, you've given to us as a seal of your promise that your Holy Spirit would be moving in our hearts to help our ears and minds focus and to hear clearly from your word. And Lord, I pray that we would hear from your word and hear your heart. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great things do not happen by accident. Uh, sometimes there's a fun coincidence and things just happen to work out. But great things do not happen by accident. Whether it's a, a, a marvel of architecture, a sports championship, uh, a wonderful vacation, an amazing film or musical performance, or even a spectacular meal, it all requires a great deal of planning. And great things are great because of that amount of work and preparation that went into them. They're not great because you lucked into it. They're great because someone somewhere or a variety of someone's went through the effort of making that great. It's what takes a cast, an orchestra from sight reading all the way to a spectacular performance, that great amount of work. And what's really amazing is on the occasion when a a, something that has had a great deal of planning is carried out, and those who are spectators of that event, who, who have no preparation of their own for that event, are pulled into it in such a way that it goes exactly as planned. One example of this would maybe be like a flash mob, where you have this group of people who are, it's kind of weird, but they go and they practice this dance either via a video choreography or they, they hide away in some, some hall or basement somewhere, go through this. They do it out in the public, in this square, in a food court, and draw people in in a way that feels spontaneous and yet completely meshes with the plan. And that is, in some ways, a picture of the triumphal entry of Christ, this entry that we know is triumphal, that Jesus comes in and it feels so spontaneous. And when you look back, you realize just how much planning was going into this. And, and that, that the entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is much more than any flash mob it was centuries and millennia in the making. And if, if we had a, a line graph through Mark of, of Old Testament scripture fulfilled, at Mark 11, there would be this sharp turn vertical. 
as a whole bunch of Old Testament comes together. And it's something that I kind of geek out on. And I'm going to spare you some of that geeking out on, but I'm going to force you through other parts of it. So just get ready for that. But it goes fulfillments from the major and minor prophets all the way back to Psalms and the life of David. This was no random day in the life of Jesus and the disciples. It had been being planned since before the Bronze Age started. And Jesus' entry, as we are going to see this morning, reveals his identity, his work, and his focus. So let's read together Mark 11, the first 11 verses. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing said, what are you doing untying the colt? And they told him what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it and, the clo and, their, and spread their cloaks on the road. And many others spread leafy branches they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when they had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is a, a pretty familiar story. And I, and I hope and pray that this morning can be a fresh look at this as we see that Jesus' well-planned Intentional entrance into Jerusalem point to his messianic royalty and specifically show him as the king of peace. In these first seven verses, this is what a lot of us think of when we think of Palm Sunday. That Jesus is coming up, he goes, go find a donkey. If someone asks you about it, you just tell them it's for me and they'll let you have it. And it's like the uber-connected Jesus of the donkey world. And I don't want to beat the well-drummed, the well-planned drum too much here. But as we dig into this passage, there are two Old Testament passages that, that tend to rise to the surface above the others. And there's many fulfilled here. And so I want to take a brief, and I, I really mean brief, look at two different verses. And what I want you to do is I want you to write these down. If you're, if you're taking notes, on, whether that be on version or on, on some paper or in a journal, write these down. The first one is Zechariah 9, 9 through 13. And Zechariah gives us this, this image of, of a king coming into Jerusalem. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, 
on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is a, as far as like precision in an Old Testament text, they name the species, the age, and the gender of, of the animal Jesus is riding in. It's impressive. But then he goes on, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, river, from the river to the ends of the earth. And as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Listen to this. He's, he's righteous. He's having salvation. He's humble. He's a humble king. He's bringing peace, not just to Israel, but to the nations. And his rule is a global rule. We need to enlarge our view of Jesus. It is so often our view of Jesus is so small. But to view him as not just king of a, of a small pocket of land in the Middle East, not just king within our churches, but a global king, a cosmic king. And then we have this communion talk in here, the blood of his covenant with us. And then we come back to verse 12, return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, drawing in those who have been set free. Today I declare to you, I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow and Ephraim as my arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword, that the Lord will overthrow our enemies." But in the midst of this, that the Lord would take us who are prisoners, and he would not only set us free, but he would give us a belonging in him. So there's Zechariah 9. The next one is Psalm 18, where we see, especially around verse like 24, 25, we see this, this plea, and this whole psalm is about Jesus. Save us, we pray. This is the Hosanna cry, Lord. Oh, Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made light, his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords and the horns of the altar. And what we see in Psalm 18 is he is the one we plead to. He is our king. He comes in the name of the Lord. And he came to be worshipped, and he came to go to the temple. There's a lot of temple language following in Psalm 118. And so we see this humble king bringing peace, bringing the blood of his covenant, bringing freedom, having a global rule, being the one we cry out to, coming in the name of the Lord, coming to be worshipped, and on the colt, the foal of a donkey. So why a deity on a donkey? Why does the babe of Bethlehem need to borrow a burrow? And before we go any more into donkey euphemisms that would lead us astray, we need to look at this cult and the significance of what's going on. There's, there's a few things. One is how prearranged was this? And we really don't know. 
Jesus is in Bethany. He has a lot of ministry connections and friendships in Bethany. That's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha are from. It's totally possible that Jesus had had Lazarus set up, and Lazarus goes, all right, they have a donkey that's never been ridden. I'll, I'll talk to him, and you can go. And he did that. It's also possible that Jesus, in his divine foreknowledge, would say, there's a donkey over there, and I'm going to make sure it's my donkey for a time, so just tell him this, and it'll work out. Either one is possible. And neither takes away from the point of how amazing this day is and how well-planned this day is. But there are two other things about this donkey that really need to stick out to us. One is its unridden nature. No one's even ever sat on this colt. And Jesus not only sits on it, but rides it for a while through a very chaotic scene of people yelling, people running around, people laying down stuff in front of it, a lot of motion. And for those of you who, like me, have any experience around donkeys, mules, or horses, knows that, that this is not a random thing. This shows us, we, we get Jesus as Lord of creation with the wind and the waves. And here is a much more gentle, subdued view of Jesus as Lord of creation. As this young donkey that's never even had someone sit on it, Jesus gets on and rides it through the streets. And not just through the streets, but through the countryside leading up. He's not just Lord of people. He is Lord of creation. But still we have to ask, why in the world would you choose a donkey? It is not majestic. And this was, would have been a small donkey. Young and unridden. There's nothing about this that would draw people to him. And the reason a king would ride a donkey into a town is because they very much plan on not needing a steed. If a guy walks into a bar in flip-flops and another guy walks into a bar wearing steel-toed boots and carrying a baseball bat, you know one of those two guys is there for a fight and one of those two guys is there for peace. Jesus comes to town for peace. And the guy that rides a donkey is not looking for a fight. One pastor notes a contrast between Muhammad riding into Mecca with 400 mounted men, 10,000 foot soldiers, adding supporters to, to his army and killing resistors, versus Jesus who came on a donkey with 12 disciples and people waving palm fronds, which is yet another sign of peace. He came in peace to bring peace. Jesus is not intimidating. He is not overbearing, but he is humble, capable, and worthy of praise. He comes to bring peace. And the people of Jer Jerusalem would have no doubt seen several military processions and, and maybe even some of royal nature being in Jerusalem. But Jesus on a young donkey is noticeably humble. Coming in peace to provide everyone there with the ability to have peace with God. Because he's not only the king of peace, he's the king of salvation. We read in verse 8, many spread out their cloaks on the road. Others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. This is a royal reception. And this wasn't just happening as Jesus got to the city gates. This was building all the way from Bethany to Jerusalem. This would have been noticed by most everyone as Jerusalem's population was swelling for the week of Passover. Jesus comes in in a way that shouts in a resounding way, here is the king. This is a king. This is a high king. And their cry to him is not, oh great king, but their cry to him is, save us and rescue us, king. Commentator Daniel Aiken writes this, coming in this way, our Lord proclaims openly what he has forbidden until this moment. I am your king. Jesus, with purpose and intentionality, presents himself as Messiah, knowing that it will provoke the Jewish leaders resulting in his crucifixion. Nevertheless, he declare, his declaration also is bathed in gracious humility. Jesus coming all up until this point in Mark, with the exception of one man who he said, go and tell your family. He's told everyone else, don't tell anyone what's just happened here. And yet here in this moment, everyone is saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he doesn't stop them. In fact, in, in one gospel account, when the scribes try to stop the crowds, he goes, if you stop them, then the rocks will cry out. The fame of Jesus' love and power has spread, culminating in this moment when he enters Jerusalem. And the people declare him as the king who saves and rescues. What a great truth this is. That Jesus is not just our savior, but he is actually our king who saves us. That he is our king who acts on our behalf. And he comes on this day on a humble donkey. And we know that one day he will come not on the donkey, but on the war horse. Not to shouts of peace, but to finish the battle. And I'm so grateful that we have the opportunity now to bow our knee to the king in his humility and in his, in his grace. And while we recognize the difference between this coming and the second coming, the crowd seems to have some confusion. Blessed is he Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Mark is the only gospel writer that brings that quote out. Mark is the only gospel writer who acknowledges that there were, there were two kingdoms being proclaimed here. And it doesn't tell me that Mark had it right and Matthew had it wrong or vice versa, but that there were multiple things being shouted, but there were enough people shouting for the kingdom of David that Mark put it in. And the Holy Spirit, more importantly, saw it as worthy to put in. At the most basic level, we can take this to mean that there was a notable group looking for a heavenly kingdom and a notable group looking for David 2.0, 
who would not overthrow the Philistines but the Romans. They were looking for an earthly geopolitical version of God's kingdom. And I need to say this because we have a similar danger happening within the American church today. Any version of the kingdom of God that places an earthly nation at the center of the kingdom or at an exalted level above all the other earthly nations, any view of the kingdom of God that, that exalts an earthly nation is not only wrong, but it is in direct opposition to the kingdom of God where Christ is the center and gathered around him is every tongue, tribe, and nation proclaiming the worthiness of the Lamb. And that in that revelation view of the kingdom of God, Israel, Sudan, Iraq, the United States of America, China, Guatemala, Somalia, Haiti are all part of the crowd that is equally crying out to the praise and glory of Jesus. And there's no flags up there. There's just a risen Savior on His throne. These people, they put David out of order in the work of the Lord. Jesus didn't come to fulfill David's life. David came to point us to a greater one who would come after him who is Jesus. Even in David's life, Jesus was the point, and today Jesus is the point. And so let us not be those who would confuse the kingdom of God with something that can be forced or voted in here. The kingdom of God comes as, a, as, as believers act in mercy and justice, walking humbly with their God. The kingdom of God comes as believers take seriously the task of making disciples of every nation and proclaiming the gospel to all creation. That's how the kingdom of God comes and one day will come in full as Christ returns. And the truth of the matter is that had David 2.0 been accomplished and had that been what Jesus came for, it would have been far less than what Jesus actually provides. And I argue that if that version of the kingdom of God had been the plan, that the gospel never would have reached places as far as Iowa. I want to read a quote from Sinclair Ferguson. Think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first, the Christian in Rome. No doubt many of them had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark in contrast between the Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword of political power by contrast with King Jesus. Yet, we know that his kingdom was established. And while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion, we know that Jesus, what Jesus did in Jerusalem, established a kingdom which would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break into pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Jesus had come to take his throne, but had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. Let us not settle for an earthly kingdom 
but always seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Let us care about the mistreatment of the poor. Let us care about pure worship. The pure worship of God, and may we see God's kingdom lived out in our hearts, lived out in our building, lived out in our neighborhood, our city, and the world, and while we wait for Him to come in full. Daniel Aiken also says about this moment as they're crying out the kingdom of David, that Jesus is their king, but he is not here to purge Israel of foreign domination. Now he is here to purge his people of sin. He is not in Israel to purge them of foreign domination, but to purge his people of sin. Because he is the king of peace and the king of salvation, having a kingdom-oriented focus. Verse 11 is just so brief. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple, when he had looked around at everything, for it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. What does it say about our Lord that upon riding unapologetically into town as a king, he doesn't first go to Herod, he doesn't first go to Pilate, he doesn't even go to the chief priests, he just goes right into the temple. We know from the text that it's getting late, and with his limited time his priority and focus is clearly seen that he goes into the temple to take a look around. This is the very same temple he stayed in as a child because it was, after all, his father's house. And we see this week it's his first stop. We'll see next week that it is also his second stop. And what this tells me is that the Lord cares deeply about his worship. He wasn't concerned with Pilate or Herod. Their kingdoms would fade away very quickly. He was concerned with his name being lifted high. He cared so much about his worship that he came to Jerusalem to die so that his worshipers, his worship and worshipers would not have to center around a physical temple, but could be everywhere worshiping in spirit and in truth. He rode a donkey to change worship forever so that all the way in Iowa, 2022, we can call on his name and be saved. It's by the Lord's mercy that we can do this. It's because our Savior is humble and came to save and came to bring peace. And he didn't come to bring peace by the edge of a sword, but he came, as Zechariah 9 tells us, to bring peace by the blood of his covenant. that's a good thing and that means so much for us that we can call on his name and we can enter the promise of the covenant that our sins could be forgiven as those who are gonna come and help lead us in singing and distribute the elements would you pray with me father we thank you for this day we thank you that we can come to you by the blood of your covenant and we thank you lord that you defeated sin that you defeated death, 
to build a bigger, better, longer-lasting kingdom than anything we could hope for. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us who are struggling, help us to put our trust in you. And Lord, we thank you that we can very appropriately and rightly call to you as the one who delivers us and the one who rescues us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.